my fundamentals exam in Zurich uh, uh, with Murray Stein, very well-known analyst. You know, I you know began it, started the thing, and his first question to me, well, you know, I had you know all these plans of you know defining anima and animus and shadow and all the all the typical Jungian jargon terms, and he said. If God were to speak to you, what would he say? <laughs> and that was the first question. Uh, and I answered somewhere along the lines of, I, God does speak to me. Because the way I define God's speech is any of those numinous experiences in which time disappears and I'm fully, fully present. You know, I think Buddhists would have a lot to say about, about that, just about presence, about essence, you know, about the the transcending ego and transcending again the personal biography but to me all those experiences and it can be with uh, back to all the things we've talked about it can be in the conversation with another person it can be in sex it can be in music it can be in nature particularly in nature uh it can be a lot of places we don't look for it you know or especially places we don't look for it, because then that's when we've given up this sort of uh, desire for a particular kind of experience and we're allowed to actually have the experience that that is opened up to us. And so to me, all those things would be rolled into, if I were to have to define God, uh, God would be whatever gets through when we are lucky enough to have those moments in our lifetime. I'm excited to bring this conversation to you. It's a, really a combination of a lot of things that um, I have personal interest in, but it's it's a new, it's just kind of a new way of doing this. Rodney's a musician along with many other things, and so I'm taking advantage of that and bringing in four of his songs throughout the episode. And the snippet that you heard at the beginning, the intro piece, is one of his songs. And you're about to hear the full full length um, song that you heard uh, earlier. It's called "Neither Soul Nor Spirit," and I'll do that throughout the episode. It, it, beginning with "Neither Soul Nor Spirit," which is an original song by Rodney. Um, then there's "Between Two Waves," which is a original song by Rodney that is overlaid with a poem by T. S. Eliot. And then Labyrinth is a song he'd written, and I don't know if it was for the project, but it was used, uh, David Eagleman, the neuroscientist, used this for a project he was doing. And then there's Songs of Kakuma. Uh, I think, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, it is the beginning of the song, Rodney took off of a, uh, a portion of a cassette that was brought over by a Sudanese refugee, 
and um, as as the refugee came to the U.S., Rodney's tutored refugees for many years, and he's he's done a lot. Actually, he's had a he's done a lot of things, and you'll soon learn that. So, a couple of things to note: uh, I'll be teaching a class at the Young Center in Houston, and if you the class will be live streamed, so it's um, anybody can have access to it. You can go to Young Houston J U N G H O U S T O N dot org, and um, uh, this class begins on the 18th of July, and I'm going to make sure of that. Yeah, 18th of July, and it'll be a, a, a an hour and a half class each Wednesday for four Wednesdays, so from the 18th of July to the 8th of August. Rodney's going to be involved in that. He's going to play some music uh, on, in one of the classes. But sign up and, uh, and and come and take a look. I'll be integrating a lot of these ideas that have been um, coming up through the podcast and certainly referencing the participants that I've brought along the ride so far. The class explores consciousness in the body. Um, the other, yeah, the other website to check out would be the theme music from this uh, this podcast, and you can reach these uh, amazing music producers at modernnationsmusic.com. Modernnationsmusic.com. Uh, and speaking of websites. You can go to the sacredspeaks.com and find a lot of links and videos and s- songs from the participants that you'll hear. I've got one page on the site, not only a page that gives information on all the participants, then there's a page that links to the audio content of each of these podcasts. There is also a page that's titled Music, and it, any of the musicians that I'm bringing in to the to the each episode I'm going to have not only some of their songs but some of their music videos if they've got them so I'm going to put some of Rodney's visual content that he's used onto uh, onto that portion of the site so check that out thesacredspeaks.com and also it's accessible at Twitter, Facebook and Instagram search the sacred speaks and if you would go to um any of those, in any of these locations, whether it's Google Play, SoundCloud, iTunes, or there's a number, a number of other places, but like it, follow it, um, all that really helps as far as findability is concerned, and um, and it's really appreciated. I want to read Rodney's bio, and then we'll get started. Uh, Rodney Waters is the scholarship director for Music Doing Good a nonprofit based in Houston, Texas, that transforms children's lives through innovative music-based programming. As a pianist, he has, performed, he has performed extensively in Japan and Europe and in Houston with the Houston Symphony, River Oaks Chamber Orchestra, Da Camera Musica, and St. Cecilia Chamber Music Society. In April 2016, his recording with Kurt Thompson of the Complete Sonatas for Violin and Piano by American composer Charles Ives was named one of the top ten recordings of Ives' music by Gramophone Magazine. Rodney earned his Bachelor and Master's of Music degrees in piano performance from the Mann's College of Music in New York, where he studied with Richard Good. 
A longtime advocate for the use of art in service of social causes, Rodney has created projects to support local resettlements of refugees through Interfaith Ministries of Greater Houston and HIV prevention programs through AIDS Foundation of Houston. In 2016, Rodney composed and recorded music for Jungians Speaking, a DVD series released by Chiron Publications. He's currently in training to be a Jungian analyst at the International School of Analytical Psychology in Zurich. And on top of that, um, he has become a f- dear friend. And so this is personally meaningful to, uh, to present his work. Um, so I'll leave it there and bring you one of his songs. And I'm, I'm excited for anybody to get to know Rodney first through his music. And, uh, and then we'll jump into the conversation.
so I'm finding that it's really difficult uh, to figure out when to press record mm -hmm. because we start talking about something that we're interested in. Right. And, uh, you know, we're kind of just setting the tone and getting connected before, before I actually press record. And um, <laughs> there's so many little threads that we could, we could travel down. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and just, just personally, I've, I've been eager to, to chat with you because, you know, we have a lot of interests in common. Right psychology, uh, depth psychology in particular, um, music, both of us coming from a music background, tattoos, and beards. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so we've got... That's pretty great. I'm sure, I'm sure through the conversation we'll find out what other, uh, what other little rabbit holes we can go down, mm. but I think those set the table for, uh, sure. for some fun. Uh, so... I just, I guess I want to start here with one of those curiosities. Um, I, my first exposure to you uh, was through the tattoo. So would you, would you kind of let folks know a little bit about what that was about and then we'll follow through that. I'm just kind of doing this. Um, Maybe maybe autobiographical from my end of things. Uh -huh. Maybe we need to start with you actually. Uh -huh. So, <laughs> so we can start. Where where do you think we should set this thing up? For me, I would have to start with music. Yeah. All right. Then good. Let's um, go there. I, I prefer you. <laughs> I prefer you. Um, you know, well, it definitely gets to the other areas. Yeah. But for me, uh, you know, I did not come from a musical family at all. And so my parents had friends uh, that had a piano, you know, my brother, every other, you know, cousins, everyone was much older than I was. So, you know, they would go over to their friend's house and there was the piano and I gradually sort of gravitated toward it and started teaching myself a little bit. And, you know, luckily my parents were sensitive enough to eventually buy me. They found a $75 upright, you know, started off on lessons. Saloon style. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so I guess I officially started lessons. I was probably nine or 10 or something like that, but it just, it was there already. You know, I, by the time I was 11, it was like, that's absolutely what I was going to do. And it's been interesting looking back and sort of unraveling all those different strands, because when, what you, uh, do and what you can gain approval from, but also what you love, the way you express yourself, all those sorts of things, uh, are sort of woven, especially into the teenage years, you know, and into those years growing up where that was, you know, so fundamental mm -hmm. to who I was. Um, then, you know, where, what am I, what am I without music? You know, that, that isn't even a question I started asking until I was in my 30s, you know, because that's who I was and what I did uh, for so many years. And was also the lens through which I, I understood everything. Now that I'm, again, looking back and thinking, you know, in a Jungian way, what what music gave me so much of it is the the levels of reality that music presents us with well let me jump in there for a second cuz <clears throat> i'm realizing as i'm going through this mm. process we don't always have the opportunity to ask somebody we're sitting across what in the hell they mean when they say what they say mm -hmm. we just either we feel stupid for asking uh -huh. or we 
you know, there's all kinds of reasons why we don't. Right. So if this gets annoying, let me know. But I want to jump in as we go. Let's remember this thread. I have two directions Great. already. The first is, what does it mean when you say Jungian? What are you talking about there? For me, Jungian means, and this is part of what I was saying about music, the acknowledgement that there are multiple levels of reality happening simultaneously. Mm-hmm. That we're experiencing you know, a shared physical reality, you know, but that our perceptions are informed by so much that we are completely unconscious of by our past, by our experiences, but then also by, by the numinous, by the mystery, by, you know, something, everything that we can't understand. And, and for me, I, I feel like the religious impulse is, uh, what happens in that conflicted space between what we do know and what we don't know. You know, that there's this uh, facing of the great mystery and we have to find a way to come to terms with that. Religious impulse. Right. Which for me is the impulse of, of just the impulse of, of meaning and connectedness, I would say. That there's something, you know, I am very much individual I'm very much connected to, to everyone, to everything, and, and how to negotiate those two very difficult poles. <laughs> I don't know. If we were a couple of youngians, we may want to interpret that. <laughs> that was amazing. But Siri, and I'm on, I'm on airplane mode. Did that, airplane did that mode thing just say, literally, I'm having trouble. trouble with the connection? Yes. Yes. Speaking of... Mysterious things that we don't understand. Mysterious happenings that just kind of insert themselves in our lives. Yeah. Wow. That was cool. So I get it. I mean, I get this language. I get what you're talking about, mm-hmm. um, at least from kind of my my understanding of it. I what I what I read into what you were saying is that early on you were kind of caught by something. Right, and that musical impulse being caught by that uh, forces one at a young age to again the same as I was describing with the religious impulse there are very practical things you have to practice your scales and you have to learn to read music and you have to work very very hard in a in a very specific disciplined kind of way but the idea of that discipline is that it opens you up to everything that music is to expression to communion with other people to uh to inspiration itself which is a very mysterious process and a mysterious experience that on the surface of it wouldn't be explained by music is essentially an organizing of vibrational patterns you know when we reduce it to that it seems like it would be, uh, you know, something nice, something pleasant, but not something that is a force in every culture, is uh, a force in everyone's life. I mean, everyone responds to sound in a deeply emotional way. And uh, again, when I think about Jung, you know, the psyche, our sort of impulses, our responses to things can be, you know, uh, 
pared down to very specific, you know, cause and effect kinds of things. But that doesn't leave open the mystery, which I think Jung opened that door. So it's like, this is here. This is something that must be reckoned with. And with music, I think, in a way, we take for granted the mystery. It's like, you know, people go to a concert, whether it's a rock concert, whether it's a classical concert, whatever. We go because we know and hope to be moved. Uh, we hope that something inside us is is taken beyond language, beyond who we are, to have this communal experience. It's a very individual experience and a communal experience simultaneously. So we're taken to this magical place. And sometimes we forget how remarkable that actually is. You know? And when I, when I look at that and when I see what music has meant to me and what music means culturally you know, in the world to, uh, to so many people, to me that's a great sort of metaphor for the larger engagement with, with the psyche in a Jungian sense. Would you, would you take us into that remarkable place from your understanding? Your thoughts on why is it remarkable? Why do we connect with it? Um, and maybe you want to get into that from your personal experience. Well, I, I think in sort of a general sense, it's because it takes us beyond language. So we can experience something and then we can describe our experience of that thing. Those are not the same things. You know, we can experience a sunset or a hike or something or a, a religious experience. We have that experience. But then the description of that is already very, very far away. Limiting. From that. So music takes you into a place of pure experience, of pure uh, numinous reality, I would say. Uh, that goes beyond the logical thought patterns of A plus B equals C. It, it really, it suspends, uh, suspends this sort of constant stream of self-definition of, of the need to describe our experience you know, uh, and sort of simulates this sort of pure, pure reality or triggers in us a kind of pure, uh, oneness with, with the moment, uh, you know, with, and it also, it's, it can be very nostalgic. It triggers, you know, it brings stuff up for us of who we were, memories, uh, all those sorts of things, but it, it is experienced in a, a very, very potent, uh, numinous present. And so uh, then in a more of a, a personal sense, it was in a very superficial way, it was a way for me to um, feel like I was good at something, to gain recognition, to get approval, because there were other areas of my life that I was so insecure about, um, you know, to get, you know, pat on the back and say you know you're doing well at something but it also provided a space for all this I would say spiritual and sexual awakening that was going on in me as a teenager that had no place to be and it was a lot that was repressed for many 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 years 
But unlike a case of repression where something sort of dies off or, or and really creates a trauma because that part of the person has been amputated, I feel like in a way I had uh, a healthy place to put it because in music, that stuff didn't die. I mean, I, it was just uh, channeled, I would say, in a, in a, in a way that I, I didn't lose all of that that I couldn't deal with until I was in my 30s, 40s, you know, and now 50s still. What about numinous? What do you mean when you say that? To me, it would be that which... cannot or should not be described. You know, again, the place of pure experience, where you can talk about it, but uh, to go back to what it actually is, um, but you're asking me to describe it. So uh, how would, how would no, one I get, describe it? I get that. Um, I like that definition. I've come, I, I, like, I like your framing of it. I, I, I defined it as the, that which beckons or nods. And I, I like the way you're, you're kind of playing around with the, the word as a direct experience of mm -hmm. something undefinable. And so, of course, we have to name something. I, I spoke with Jeffrey Kripal a while ago, and He'd actually written a, he'd written a textbook on religion mm -hmm. and he defined religion. And I, I asked him what his definition, we talked about his definition. He was like, actually, I don't really like to define religion, you know? And, uh, and that makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. to me. Although we do need to have a word for that, that thing. And to um, <clears throat> that thing, which seems to beckon or not. I mean, why the hell do we people even question a beyond or why mm -hmm. is there even the existence of a beyond I think so to posit that I think is to say or to suggest that there is something numinous mm -hmm. beckoning us beyond our comprehension and uh, and it sounds to me like what you're saying around you know uh, around the age of 11 as you were being beckoned by something that has provided your life with a certain framework mm -hmm. to not only negotiate life and culture, but to mm -hmm. connect with um, a reality beyond the reality of culture and and uh, and growth. Right. Well, it it's the way those two things interact. In in music, it's easier to describe because you have to practice and learn your notes. You know, there is the very practical aspect of it, uh, and there are people that you know can perform perfectly, but it, you don't feel it it's not you know they aren't emotional communicative performers <laughs> then there are performers that are often much more emotional and communicative but sometimes a mess you know mm -hmm. th there's you know they have this this great uh can convince you of this great passion but if it's a technical mess then it's still not the most powerful what's the most powerful is when those things are ultimately held in balance what would you say about punk rock being that it's technically, I guess, technically kind of messy, you know, a lot of the, even the guys that guys and girls that were creating punk rock were like, we didn't know how to do right. all that shred stuff, you know, and we just got a guitar and we bashed it around right. and, but something pretty enormous came out. No, it is, it is enormous. And I think, you know, the, that kind of music, I think what it serves is, you know, a, a unions will always talk about compensation. You know, I think we, we live in a society that, is so caught in literal right. 
reality that we need something that is extremely emotional, that is extremely uh, freed from from restraints, from you know, from the idea of constriction, and that kind of music for me uh, opens up the, the the gateways of of just feeling pure, whether it you know. All the negative emotions, I think, that are censored out by polite society. Sure. You know, you, <laughs> yeah. that, that, that it gives, a, it gives a, a healthy space for all of that. You know, so in, uh, in the idea of compensation, someone who is able to embrace that kind of depth of passion and feeling uh, and incorporate that into something that is you know more structured in their life however that happens you know but it's the again the idea of balance yeah that's that layer where we've kind of touched on a little bit about culture and whatever else there is you know that the, the unique private and personal existence mm -hmm. that is is involved in this interplay between mm -hmm. uh, its opposite and culture that right. you know culture being the thing that asserts sameness mm -hmm. it's homogenous way right. of being and kind of we all know that while we need to be a part of that and find a way to be a part of that there's something inside of us that's kind of outside of that that right. we can't get into that we that culture kind of won't always let us find expression so it's experiences like this that you have to find a discipline and a practice so before we go completely far afield because i've got about 13 questions that i want to get into there I'm interested, and I, maybe I feel a bit conscientious to anybody listening, um, if you would just kind of set the table on your background and kind of what positions you to speak from a position of expertise about music and all the other topics we're going to get into. Uh, sure. So, again, started when I was quite young. By the time I was 11, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Uh, luckily had parents who, you know, they didn't necessarily understand it, but they were very supportive. Uh, and I went to Manus College of Music, which is now part of the new school for social research mm -hmm. in New York, but I uh, got my degrees in piano, bachelor's and master's in New York. Ended up in Houston, uh, staff pianist at Shepherd School, Rice, which I did for about 10 years. I was, you know, at the same time I was doing a decent amount of touring, was going to Japan a lot. Uh, violinist that I worked with. We did a lot of concert tours, uh, some recording, you know, a lot of that kind of thing. And so, you know, a lot of subbing with the Houston Symphony and chamber music in town and, you know, playing just that, that's, that was my life. I mean, that was what I did. Uh, you know, I started working professionally when I was 14. Uh, I grew up in Lubbock. So I started playing in the music department at Texas Tech when I was 14. I remember... <laughs> I remember getting my, uh, what is it called, the hardship driver's license? Sure. Because I was working, when I, I remember when I was 15, playing synthesizers in Jesus Christ Superstar, and we <laughs> would have, I remember having technical rehearsals till like one, two in the morning, you know, when I was 15, doing my, you know, playing with all these synthesizers that were actually quite difficult to deal with back in, you know, in the 80s. Uh, I had a blast. It was, it was great. You know, but that's, that was really, I mean, I, the only jobs I had really were music jobs from the time I was, you know, 12, 13, 14, I started playing for weddings and, you know, background music and things, you know, up through, you know, when I was 
35, you know, sort of midlife uh, transition was starting to happen. And I, for me, what that meant was a change of the role that music played in my life, not a distancing from it. Well, in a way, it was a distancing from it. Yeah, it was, who am I um, when I'm not on the piano bench? And so I need to explore other things. But I had one thing that was somehow made sense to me. When I was in college, I was doing some volunteer work. I went to Riverside Church in New York, which is very, very cool. Very cool place. You know, and they encourage uh, volunteer of, of all the members to find a place where they volunteer. And I volunteered in the English, English language uh, program, which was a, a tutoring program. Mm -hmm. So I tutored, uh, I was an exchange student to Germany uh, when I was uh, between high school and college. So my memories of what it's like when people really are patient enough to help you with the language were very strong. So I thought, you know, I, I wanna get involved with this. I tutored. Korean businessmen and construction workers from Costa Rica and just this wide variety of people. But, you know, it was a program that didn't exist on very much money. And I thought, well, you know, I'm at a conservatory. I have all my friends need opportunities to run, you know, have dress rehearsals to run through the music they're getting ready for, for their recital. So I thought, of course, it's a win-win situation if I organize a couple of benefit concerts for uh, the English Conversation Program at Riverside Church. So back then, suddenly it was like music can exist on several different levels. And when you set up a situation where, uh, you know, a student going to a conservatory has an opportunity to run through their program, people uh, that go to Riverside Church that need help with English, then there were funds raised for that. Often those people came to the concert you know, then they would have an experience of music. It's like so many good things can happen when you align sort of the arts and social causes or the arts and psychological causes. So that was really fundamental for me. And then when I was getting back to when I was 35-ish and I was, you know, I, I didn't want to be at Rice anymore. I sort of felt like a human karaoke machine, you know, just cranking out you know, violin sonatas and cello sonatas, and it was a quantity quality kind of thing. It's like I wanted to change that aspect of the way I related to music. I wanted to have less music, but, you know, more quality uh, engagement because it wasn't so watered down with the quantity. So, so then I went back to my experiences in college and I started volunteering as a language tutor at Interfaith Ministries for Greater Houston. And then I, I did a CD for them, then started, you know, incorporating arts things into the way we can help raise money and awareness for, for refugee resettlement, helping them, you know, learn a language, uh, which again, like music, it serves on so many different levels because a language, especially in the United States, dictates so much of your experience, who you're able to interact with, how you can become a part of uh, a culture, how you connect to other people. It's, it's, it's a key that unlocks an entire world. So, so language and music were two things that were very important to me. I did this at Interfaith Ministries, and then I, uh, for three years, 
uh, sort of moved this into a semi-professional capacity where I worked part-time at AIDS Foundation Houston and had a concert series, chamber music series, art series that raised money for HIV prevention programs. So I was still doing music, but it was more on my own terms and more music, not just for its own sake, but music connected to other things. Or it's not an either or. Music can be just for its own sake, mm -hmm. for the sake of playing music. But when you align it with something, and depending on the context, can do a lot of other things too. So I, you know, was, and that was the real transition for me was when I was, you know, in my 30s and thinking about what I wanted my relationship to music to be rather than just sort of, um, well, the role it had always uh, been for me, which was so much of an acknowledgement of being worth something, of being able to do something well, you know. Who are your childhood heroes? Who are my childhood heroes? Wow, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I know I could pause because you can edit out the oh, silence yeah. later. Um, or we may just keep the pause in because it's... <laughs> childhood heroes. I mean, the, the first thing that comes to mind are, you know, this awakening of music. That's where I, uh, that's where I was. So, uh, you know, I remember getting the, the Van Cliburn recording of the Tchaikovsky Concerto. Uh, you know, famously Van Cliburn, you know, good old boy from Texas... Uh, you know, won the Tchaikovsky Concerto Competition in 1958, I believe. Uh, you know, very famous recording of the, of the Tchaikovsky Concerto. And I remember having that when I was, you know, 10, 11, listening to that. I became a huge fan of the music of Prokofiev when I was that age. Because especially early Prokofiev, there's, I mean, again, so we're back to the punk music thing. There's this violence. I mean, he was, you know, he was the bad boy of of one of the bad boys of music in the early 20th century, breaking all the rules. There was an extremely violent, visceral uh, aspect to his music that, you know, I was a very contained, you know, good Baptist in Lubbock, Texas, you know, concentrated on making straight A's and, and being a very good boy. And in this very violent and expressive music, I found a place for all those things, you know, that couldn't, couldn't live in other ways in my life. So, so, there, so there were, yeah, there were musical heroes, I would say. We shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown, unremembered gate, when the last of Earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. At the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall, and the children in the apple tree, not known, because not looked for, but heard half heard, 
in the stillness between two waves of the sea. of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. When the tongues of flames are enfolded into the crowned knot of fire, and the fire, and the rose, between self and culture. What was that like? Being the dude who's listened to, listening to all these classical pieces. Uh, 
what did you what, what was going on socially with you around that age well I was yeah I, I would not call myself an outcast at school or anything like that I wasn't you know I had plenty of friends and I got along with with everyone quite well and it was good but there was always this underlying you know growing up gay in Lubbock Texas and not being able to come to terms with that which I didn't ultimately until I was 30 you know there's always this other level of you know there's something that's one wrong with me there's something that other I can accept in myself that other people certainly wouldn't be able to accept and that sort of disconnect again I was able to sort of shelve that in the guise of music where I could get could feel accepted you know in many ways could be expressive you know but ultimately I had to you know keep that door closed tight and uh, and it made me probably even more driven to you know practice all those hours and to really really because that life that life force you know what Jung would call libido all of that it needed somewhere to go and music is a wonderful place for that for that to be until ultimately you know my 30s then when I had to re uh, evaluate my relationship to music music couldn't hold it anymore you know so I had to find other ways to more authentically acknowledge you know the sexual the spiritual all the things that had sort of uh, I was able to you know between music and just a lot of determination you know keep that door shut did you how do I say that did you have to reevaluate your relationship to music at the same or if not exactly the same point uh, of, of your sexuality did the two things go together in that well finally 30s? finally admitted uh, that I was gay and, and started to become comfortable with that when I was 30 so you know a few years later you know, I guess it was th- 35 when I stopped working at Rice and mm-hmm. was sort of like you know I want music to, to play a slightly different role my son's a you know, big classical fan in mm-hmm. the opera you know, that's what he wants to listen to and you know he'll he'll make comments about friends of his that are listening to music that is you know, different than that. <laughs> and he's, I say, man, gosh, how, how are you? Uh, I, I don't imagine that there's a lot of your friends at mm-hmm. that age who are listening to um, to classical music. So I just wonder, you know, in the '80s in Lubbock, Texas, how many people are getting really interested and turned on by this kind of music? And it's, I think it's just fascinating that you felt so connected and called to it that you listened to it and created a vocation out of it. It's one of those, you know, out of the desert, the oasis appears. Right. And, you know, but I, I wouldn't take that much credit, created a vocation out of it. I, it, it was, I had to, I had no choice, (laughs) you know, I had no choice. And luckily I had parents that were supportive and, you know, Texas tech has a wonderful music department. You know, I had a, a really good uh, beginning piano teacher and then started studying with a professor at Tech when I was, I don't know, 13 or 14. So, you know, I, I was also lucky in many, many, many ways. From 10 to 12 or 13, all of a sudden you're training with professors at the university. 
Yeah. How does that happen? That seems like it's incredibly fast. Well, I mean, I, I, I was definitely not a prodigy. I mean, I, I know what piano prodigies sound like, and I was not a prodigy. But I learned very quickly, and it was clearly natural for me. And I worked, I worked really hard. You must have. It took me forever to learn how to do a scale. <laughs> but, but it's also, I also, for one year, attempted to play the viola, and that was a disaster. So it, it's also interesting just because, for some reason, piano was very natural for me. Other instruments, not at all. I played guitar a little bit, tried a little bit of, you know, violin, viola. No. So what from, what little threads do we need to pull on from childhood that created this recipe for you to... You know, I, I hear the I hear the language around that that you didn't really create it. It it, it grabbed you and you mm-hmm. kind of lived that out. Mm-hmm. You didn't have any conscious choice of of doing that. Um, well, I, I mean, I would think when I went to, if we're going to talk a little bit more about Jungian study and all mm-hmm. that. So when I went to when I was at Manus when I was in in college, uh, studying, you know, and to get a bachelor's and master's in music, you know, schools are different, you know, but at that, you know. Man, it's the conservatory scene. There wasn't a lot that wasn't music at school. You know, we had, you know, the English classes. We had, you know, a couple of, you know, so, you know, world history, art history. But there wasn't a lot that wasn't music. There was no heavy literature classes, anything like that. You know, so I had one good friend who was doing a, a independent study class at Hunter College. And she said, you know, I... Uh, we got assigned this book called Memories, Dreams, Reflections that, uh, you know, is really interesting. You might want to read it. So I discovered Memories, Dreams, Reflections at the same time that I was discovering Hesse. Since I'd been an exchange student uh, to Germany, I sort of, you know, had my German at a, at a decent level and wanted to keep that going. One thing that I found was interesting and helpful for me. I got frustrated when I did try to do too much reading in German if I didn't understand everything and had to look up too many words. So I did this experiment where I would read a Hesse book in English and then I would read it in German so that, you know, if I didn't understand every word, I didn't have to stop too much. I could still sort of get it. So I did that with Siddhartha. I read it in English, then in German. I did it with Beneath the Wheel. Uh, You know, I did it with... uh, you know, several of the, the Hesse books, Demian, of course, Demian was huge for me. You know, the idea of living a double life and all that stuff, you know, made sense as a, I wouldn't even say closeted, a, a, a you know, a man who couldn't deal with his sexuality, you know, a musician, all that, the idea of the double life. So, so, so the, fill the, that in for me, because I've only read Siddhartha, so I haven't read the, any of the other books you're talking oh, about. Okay, well, well, Demian, very Jungian in that, you know, he, uh, is going to school. He's the good boy. He meets sort of a shadow figure, you know, and uh, the shadow figure that sort of guides him and takes him into places that he would never be able to go himself. And then, you know, the shadow figure's mother ends up becoming a kind of anima figure for him. And so this, uh, you know, all this symbolism or something about the egg and the opening of the egg, all this sort of alchemical symbolism. Uh, but the idea of, you know, the old, hero's journey idea but uh, an interior where you know it was clearly that these different characters were part parts of the protagonist's psyche so uh you know reading that you know i didn't necessarily 
understand it on all those levels. Well, I certainly didn't understand it on all those levels. I just knew hmm, this feels good. This there's <laughs> there's something here that makes me feel, you know, uh, again, like with music, it resonates with something. Who mm-hmm. knows why? A certain piece. Certain people gravitate to, towards certain kinds of music. This literature, the poetry of Rilke, the um, Hesse, Jung, mm-hmm. sort of. Uh, and then I got really into David Lynch films. So I remember seeing Blue Velvet when it opened in 1986. <laughs> uh, you know, which, you know, for you know the little straight-A Baptist boy from Lubbock, you know, nothing's going to blow your mind like Blue Velvet, you know, when you're 19 years old. But I also loved it. You know, I loved it because it, it it gave a voice to 
all this other stuff that I was way too scared to to look at within myself. So so now I see all these things are so related, you know, but didn't really uh, start to show themselves in different forms until much, much later, uh, you know, again, until, you know, music couldn't hold all this. And I had, you know, I got into analysis, you know, I dealt with my sexual orientation. I hadn't dealt with my sexuality, my sexual being at all. You know, I mean, that's something that straight people don't really have to go through. I mean, plenty of straight people oh, have trouble no. dealing with their sexuality, but just the label, you know, right. how, you know, you know, how old were you when you accept, accepted that you were heterosexual? You know, sure, that doesn't sure. happen. Right. So, so, you know, I, 30, you know, I could, I was out, I was in a relationship. I, you know, I thought, well, you know, check that off my list. I've, I've done that. You know, that was just the very, very beginning steps. So, you know, it was later in my 30s when, you know, and after I had, you know, or about the same time I was doing the work with Interfaith Ministries, the work at AIDS Foundation, you know, that I started seeing an analyst. I was, you know, having some difficulties in the relationship that I was in. You know, I had, yeah, there was a lot that I hadn't been able to deal with yet. So, so then the, the real Jungian work began. And being in Houston, um, I had remembered Memories, Dreams, Reflections. I had picked up a couple of different Jungian books here and there. I remember getting Mysterium Conjunctionis at Half Price Bookstore. There's a little <laughs> Just a little, you know, I, you know, I would just flip through it, read things here and there and think, I don't know why, but I love this, you know. Yeah. And that's a great, you one. know, and then I went to the Jung Center. My first class at the Jung Center was the poetry of Rilke that, that James Hollis uh, was teaching. And then, you know, that unfolded from there. I'm thinking about the threads to tug on here, because we've got the one thread about the kind of introduction into Jung through memories, dreams and reflections. You also have been talking about your sexual orientation and sexuality. Mm -hmm. And it seems like what you're talking about there is the containment that you had to do that, that was, for whatever reason, that you had to, that had to be contained. Right. And it expressed itself through music. Right. And creativity. And so I'm, I'm kind of interested in a little bit of that, like as you're looking back, before we go into mm -hmm. the kind of Jungian world, which will connect us with a lot of right. your more recent projects. Um, I'm, I'm still interested as you look back and reflect on what was being contained. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, I mean, what was being contained was just my, all my judgments around my body, around being sexual, you know, in my case with another man, um, you know, all that stuff was, was so shut down. You know, I mean, I could, I finally admit that I was gay, but I was still very closed off sexually and pretty shut down. And, uh, and those are two different things, you know, and to finally admit that and, you know, left the relationship that I was, that I was in, uh, which was a, a wonderful relationship, but it was, uh, it was a relationship of a particular time in my life. And it was 12 years. It was a long time. But it, uh, I realized that that relationship had more to do with uh, 
past wounding and uh, and fear of sexuality itself, even though it was, you know, an acknowledgement of being gay and being open and being in a relationship. Um, you know, but the acknowledgement of all those things took me out of that and into, you know, a lot of experiences, m- meeting people, you know, that I couldn't have imagined. And it was pretty terrifying, you know, for, for quite a few years. Um, but to gradually lose the fear of that and to gradually um, just be open, you know, open to open to the things that are uh, that are scary because the the other thing i mean you know being a musician is scary in its own way i mean you're very vulnerable going out on stage and and there's all those sorts of things you know but that was in a way very much my comfort zone you know and and to, to negotiate in the world like that and to be passionate like that to use my body in that way you know, but, you know, if you, if, you know, you really talk about the areas of sexuality and opening to that, I was still very closed off in my late thirties, you know, and it took opening to that. And, you know, my analyst was the first one that really explained to me um, what made sense all along, but I would, could have never really put it in the terms of the way that sexuality and spirituality are connected, you know, and that to repress one means to repress the other, you know, not, not to, not to necessarily to be very sexual. I'm not saying to be, you have to be very sexual to be, but to, uh, to be open to whatever one's uh, need for expression is when that is, if that is shut off, you know, out of fear, then one is also shutting off one's spiritual channel. Okay, so you just hit on the geyser, I think. When I, when I think about the things that you've been doing, the term that comes to mind for me the mm-hmm. most is expression. Mm-hmm. You have been looking at ways that mm-hmm. people consciously or certainly unconsciously express parts of themselves that they're, they're sometimes aware of and sometimes not aware of. Right. So the, the the foreshadowing here is that we're we're going to be talking about beards and bodies and tattoos and kind of adornment, you know, right. kind of outer expression of interior realities. So, but that that thing you're talking about, you know, spirituality and sexuality. Mm-hmm. So you're you're using these words as um, under the heading of ways in which an individual expresses themselves. Mm-hmm. It's with a question mark. And transcends themselves. So say more about that. Well, you know, I would say in, again, what I was trying to, to say with music is that when one truly loses oneself with music, you are both, you know, the paradox of being thoroughly in the moment, thoroughly who you are at, at your, your essence but it has just transcended the uh, the smallness of my biography. You know, uh, you know. Suddenly, 
you know, I am myself and I am connected to something much larger, you know. I think also with sexual experience, then the idea, you know, of, of connecting in a way that transcends who we are, you know, that, that you're both at the same time very much yourself, you know, mm-hmm. and yet uh, there's the possibility of, of completely transcending past, future, present. It's all you know, it's all pure experience. And then, and then again, with the, the you know, the, the way that, uh, you know, the mystics speak about God in very sexual terms. Yeah. You know. See, uh, see or listen to episode with Jeffrey Kripal on uh, mysticism and sexuality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, he, I think the thing that he said was that Gnostic, Gnostic literature, I can't remember exactly what he was saying, but mm-hmm. it, it, it is deeply sexual. Is right. the, so, so we have the spirituality and the sexuality. Mm-hmm. Where people get bogged down a lot of times is we, and what I tried, I was really drilling in with Jeff, is <clears throat> we, we make sexual and the erotic about the act of intercourse or mm. sex and not not about as not about one means by which creativity is expressed and i think we can I, i'm i'm curious what you'd say about creativity cuz i'm assuming that your framework for creativity is in some way finding an expression of the kind of mystery or numinous or Right. But, you know, but when I think of erotic and I think of, of Eros and the way that Jungians would talk about Eros, it's about connection, you know, that we are genuinely able to connect. So, so for me, creativity has to do with how do we, how do we find the place that allows us to connect to our deeper self, which is, to me, the same thing as connecting to God, and to each other, you know, in a, in a context and to our, to our community, to, you know, as, you know, larger and larger groups. And the, and what you touched on, you know, the idea of intimacy and Eros in the erotic, not being limited to the sexual, mm-hmm. you know, cause I'm also someone who, and we've had this conversation before that, uh, you know, most of my, my very, very closest friends are straight men. So there's not, an erotic physical sexual you know exchange of energy but there's very much the exchange of intimacy which i think often especially looking back when it was not as clear for me uh, for me that's where i was channeling my homoerotic nature was into these really beautiful wonderful friendships with straight men because at least there was an intimacy even if there was not physical intimacy and what it provided for my friends I think so often was you know in the sort of macho straight world uh, of men especially you know in West Texas or, or you know in American culture in general you know the kinds of things that are allowed to to be talked about that was very different I was very very open for me that was that was my form of 
sexuality was being as emotionally intimate as possible with my close male friends. And now that, you know, when I'm looking back on it and I'm much more conscious about, you know, how these, how these things uh, uh, manifest, you know, in friendships, in, in groups of men, um, that's sort of what led me to, again, we can get to the, the beard and tattoo uh, projects also, but uh, these ways of, ways of connecting, uh, especially between men that are extremely intimate, but because we generally live in a homophobic society, you know, and I'm speaking for myself, internalized homophobia on the part of, of many, many gay people, you know, and, you know, homophobia in general, that is really just a fear of, a fear of intimacy and a fear of vulnerability and a fear of, of eros that exists in a place that makes us uncomfortable. How, how far can we go down that rabbit trail? Well, for me, I mean, if, if we want to get to the beard thing. No, no, no. Okay. I, I'm actually, I, I would be, I would be really, uh, I think there's value in talking about mm. sexuality because mm. it seems like if we stick with <clears throat> music, sexuality, mm. spirituality, mm-hmm. um, w- we'll end up getting there yeah. pretty naturally. But you're saying some things that I find fascinating. I'm just. Well, also, the, you know, the idea that, again, defining what we would call erotic and uh, intimate as to limit that to physical sexuality is a shame, you know, because uh, what I've found with, you know, the very close straight male friends that I have is that there is a place of this, of, you know, some of the most vulnerable, intimate exchanges, you know, I, I think of, you know, very specific conversations or whatever that, you know, one does almost get the feeling uh, that one would from a really, really wonderful sexual experience where where everything disappears and suddenly there is, you feel like you belong somewhere. You feel... Uh, connected and you feel okay with who you are and you feel okay with with your place of thing now i'm thinking of the the mary oliver poem wild geese you know i can't remember it exactly but the last line calling you know to my place in in creation in the world in in things and that's what you know these intimate moments maybe we're sort of getting to that whether it's with uh performing or hearing a piece of music that is truly moving, you know, being in uh, a conversation with someone where the world disappears and it's a truly intimate connection, that sexual intimate connection like that. Um, you know, when we get to the tattoo, the experience of, of getting a tattoo, of having uh, gone through this initiation process where suddenly some symbol uh, that has lived in your mind now lives on your body and you have to carry that with you into the world. This manifestation of that, you know, 
the beards again th- this thinking of bearding clubs and competitions and suddenly these men are able to talk about each other physically are able to compliment each other are able to open up an intimate space <laughs> that didn't exist for them before you know it's remarkable I had a guy walk in here earlier uh, in my psychotherapeutic practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he walked in. I was like, "Man, what a great beard you've got! <laughs> That's great." Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The the it's it's funny the the sort of bearding community and this this sort of popularization of that. I unveiled a lot of really really interesting things for me, but suddenly, you know, it enabled men to sort of be physical with each other in terms of, you know, acknowledging and complimenting and talking about products and talking about beard oils and talking about, you know, well, you know, what do you do for your split ends and your beard drift and all this kind of stuff um, yeah. that, um, you know, and the, 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 now then the clubs, the bearded villains, uh, all these sort of international groups that are forming these sort of male bonds there it gives them license it gives them freedom again to create this space of intimacy well it took to to be able to express that which should not be expressed right and that i think is an important thread that you and i are playing with here from your music creativity sexuality and the culture Right. So, so just to put some context for anybody listening to this that doesn't know some of the stereotype of Lubbock, Texas, is we're dealing with an area of Texas that's incredibly flat and expansive. Um, there is a lot of cattle industry that goes on there. But what was your experience? I mean, what makes it Lubbock, Texas in quotations for you? What was it like as a kid? You know, I, I don't know. As a kid, I was just experiencing it. It's again, it's like, you know, how can a fish describe water? It was, <laughs> it was just, uh, you know, in retrospect, it was a wonderful place to be from, mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> but I think about one thing is that, you know, West Texas has, everybody gives West Texas a hard time for being so flat, so flat. But the beauty of that expanse and the beauty of the sunsets. Yes, we get dust storms. But because there's so much dust in the air, we get the most spectacular sunsets. Yeah. And there's something about, you know, I remember, you know, being sort of outside of town or, you know, just somewhere out in the country where literally 300 and, you know, everywhere you look, it's completely flat. You've got, it's all horizon. It's all horizon. And there's something kind of spectacular about that. And then the other thing, it's like the first time I went to the hill country when I was probably a teenager or something, I thought I was seeing mountains. You know, I, it was like, you know, and then when I saw the Alps when I was an exchange student to Germany, you know, I thought I'd left the planet. It was like the, the greatest thing ever. You know, so there's something about, but there's something about, having that as my growing up experience, this sort of complete openness. And I haven't thought so much about how that sort of affected me psychologically, but, it, but it's an interesting um, 
It's a very interesting symbol. The, the idea of just encountering the horizon. That's why I think all those folks from uh, California, New York ran out to Marfa. Mm-hmm. You know, that was my understanding. You know, this is crazy to be able to see as far right. as you can see out there and to be so untouched by civilization from these areas that are heavily laden right. with civilization and everybody's on top of each other. Right. I guess the, my, my, my association there, my, you know, is kind of like, wow, I wonder what it would be like to grow up as a, a, a gay boy in Lubbock, Texas, mm-hmm. who likes classical music and, you know, is like completely driven to go after mm-hmm. that so much so that you're working with professors when you're 14 and getting a hardship license. I mean, this is rich <laughs> stuff, man. <laughs> um, I still think I'm a little, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm swimming a bit through what, what struck me when you were talking about men and their conversations. Mm-hmm. And the, the idea is that came to my mind was performative when you're in those intimate moments Mm -hmm. and not performative, like you're putting on a show performative, like you're completely tuned into the moment right? with the fullness of your being, you know, whatever word goes there with the fullness of yourself where everything else falls away and you're able to be completely flexible and present with whatever comes up. And that's, the tragedy of homophobia, not for gay men, but for straight men, is because there's this cultural expectation that one should not embrace that open, you know, what could be described as feminine feeling, eros, erotic side of the personality. And But when all that comes online, and when it is all there, that's a transformative experience. That's a numinous experience. That's that is a God experience for me. You said it. You you dropped the G word. Right. Uh, you've dropped it twice. What do you mean when you say God? I I, I would I would describe it as I would go back to then I would backtrack see, a little see bit earlier and comment, say see an earlier comment about regarding <laughs> numinous experience. Um, in my in my exam, uh, my fundamentals exam in Zurich. Uh, uh, with Murray Stein, very mm-hmm. well-known analyst. Yeah. You know, I, you know, began it, started the thing, and his first question to me, well, you know, I, had, you know, all these plans of, you know, defining anima and animus and shadow and all the all the <laughs> typical Jungian jargon terms, and he said, "If God were to speak to you, what would he say?" <laughs> and that was the first question. Uh, and I answered somewhere along the lines of I, God does speak to me because the way I define God's speech is any of those numinous experiences in which time disappears and I'm fully, fully present. You know, I think Buddhists would have a lot to say about, about that, just about presence, about essence, you know, about the, the transcending ego and transcending again, the personal biography. But to me, all those experiences, and it can be with, uh, back to all the things we've talked about. It can be in the conversation with another person. It can be in sex. It can be in music. 
It can be in nature, particularly in nature. Uh, it can be a lot of places we don't look for it, you know, or especially places we don't look for it, because then that's when we've given up this sort of uh, desire for a particular kind of experience. And we're allowed to actually have the experience that mm, that is nice. opened up to us. And so to me, all those things would be rolled into if I were to have to define God, uh, God would be whatever gets through when we are lucky enough to have those moments in our lifetime. So <clears throat> there's something else. It seems to me there's something else other than mindfulness, right? Like the, the, the one thing about the numinous, the term, you know, the, either you're going the breath route or the nod route, you know, to nod. So, so something's nodding, mm -hmm. right? So, something is getting your attention. Mindfulness is, you know, paying attention to the world in a, without judgment and on purpose in the moment. You know, do you distinguish between those two things, the numinous and mindfulness? To me, I would because mindfulness is is a part of discipline. So, so to me, again, the discipline of practicing the piano, the openness of what music is. So, mindfulness would be a kind of discipline. Yeah, mindfulness would be doing my scales and practicing. The numinous would be the the hidden powerful potential in a Beethoven sonata, what actually can engulf you and change your life. Well, really it's the like way that. it's the way those two things interact with each other, I would say. I like that you use music as the metaphor. That's that's why I feel so lucky that I worked so hard and had the experience of developing that language and that set of symbols and that set of metaphors because you know whenever I have trouble with something I think well what are the analogies in music is it something that I could understand more if I think about it in in those terms and then how do I apply it to the the situation at hand okay so let's so that with all this stuff because uh, we've got I've got basically <laughs> 20, 24 minutes to have a four-hour conversation. Mm -hmm. um, how, how has this, what we've set the table here for, how, how have you then gone into the tattoo or the beard as an area of research? And just, fra we keep saying this, right? Frame for people what, right. what we're talking about when we say your tattoo project, your beard project. Right, so the tattoo project uh, evolved when I was, I can't remember what year was, I was about 45, and... I had had an idea for a tattoo I, and I'm not the type of person to get a tattoo, <laughs> whatever that means. And yeah, we could talk a long time about why I would even think that. But uh, when I was at Manus, when I was um, 20 years old, reading Jung, reading Rilke, reading Hesse, I was also trying to meditate. And I had an experience where... I was in this meditative state and so something happened. 
And it was the experience of being a dragon suspended in space. It was a dragon that exploded. And at the center, all that was left was this shining thing that was simultaneously a star and a diamond. So this was taking place on a macro level and a micro level simultaneously. The dragon exploded around this star diamond and then reconfigured. And then it exploded again and it reconfigured and then it exploded again and it kept going six or seven times. And I had to like pull myself out of this state. I didn't know what had happened. There were no drugs involved, not even... (laughs) There was no, I mean, this was just a pure meditative thing that surprised the hell out of me. And I had no idea what to do with. I didn't talk to anybody about it for years, not because it was traumatic or upsetting. I just didn't know what it was. And then eventually, fast forward many years in analysis, reading about Jung, the idea of the dragon came up many, many, many times. And what, and my life when I, you know, I, you know, had this whole life married to my ex-wife till I was 30, something, everything came apart and then reformed. You know, then in my first uh, relationship with a man for 12 years, then everything came apart and everything had to be reformed and sort of starting to see this dragon pattern and all the implications of that. So I started thinking about getting a tattoo. It's like, well, you know, some kind of dragon, this is a very, you know, special symbol for me that connects me to way back. Uh, And then reading about Jung, I, I decided on a dragon Ouroboros to get on my chest. The thing that happened was, and I was in analysis at the time, the thing that happened was after I got it, there was something of that energy, that symbol that had been with me since I was, for 25 years, since I was 20, when that, that happened. Suddenly some of that had actually been incorporated onto my body. It had been brought from inner to outer. And the expression of that symbol in a small way shifted my analysis and shifted my transformation um, in a way that felt very powerful. I did not anticipate the psychological, the positive psychological effects of getting the tattoo. It was profound. And then I thought, I wonder if other people have this experience. And so it was a few years. And of course, I was going to get that since I'm not the type of person to get a tattoo, as I said. I was going to get one small one or whatever. And then, you know, now I'm six tattoos later. (laughs) Um, And so started working with Jungian analyst Kate Burns Mm -hmm. at the Jung Center. And so we started interviewing people about their tattoos. Uh, with the idea that sort of from a Jungian place, we would look at it the same way an image would come up in a dream. You know, some of them are very conscious of what they're putting on their bodies. Some of them not at all. But we would have questions like, well, what was going on in your life when you got that? And to start to see the connections between the impetus of when, when they got a tattoo, what the symbol was, what it meant to them then, how that meaning has changed, there was one interview where there's this remarkable aha moment with this guy, you know, rocker into the very much into the scene, completely tatted all over, um, heavily drug use earlier in life, whatever. And then 
complete life had changed. You know, his, his life as a Christian is very important to him now. You know, so he has a massive Jesus tattoo on his back, which is remarkably beautiful, and also has this incredible zombie sleeve that, that he got in his drug days and his young, like it was all those times ago. But then seeing the connection between the resurrection from the dead, that he was still craving that resurrection in the form it took a zombie form, you know, but symbolically, psychically, it was the same impulse to be born again, to 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 come to terms with what had been buried and not dealt with and the need for those things to be transformed. So all of these fascinating conversations that we had, you know, we then we would have bring people together at the Young Center and people would come and talk, you know. People would start crying about, you know, uh, what what this meant to them, you know, what that time in their life meant to them, what that person meant to them that they got the tattoo for, uh, you know, but seeing the remarkable power of the symbol, the, the thing that the symbol can carry that nothing else can. And then we get back to music. We we have to have something that is nonverbal, I think, carry that experience so looking at again tattoo symbolism the same way that we would look at at dream symbolism and so we did that for about three years uh in the process kate got a tattoo herself very beautiful and you know it's it's been a, a fascinating way to talk to people about uh the inner being manifest outer in 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 life on the body and the necessity of the body being a part of that you know it's not that we escape the body you know it's that we embrace the body and you know we also interviewed uh, quite a few particularly women who had been uh dealt with rape sexual abuse those sorts of things and they're like this is my ownership i can change my body and it proves that it's mine, you know. Very, very powerful, powerful conversations that we had in this project. Yeah, you certainly get anyone thinking about what was going on in those moments. Of course, that can generalize to mm. all the other moments when somebody got a tattoo. You know, what so often those stories are, you know, full of intoxicated evenings and random right impulsive and we stops. and we had you know we had quite a few of those and you know someone says you know well i got that i was drunk i was 18 it doesn't mean anything to me now and then you know we talk about it for a few minutes and then suddenly or they would be very aware of the fact that what it means is i wouldn't be who i am now had i not been who i was then mm-hmm. and that i carry that on my body every day see so someone with who doesn't have a tattoo uh there's not something inescapable on their body that they are confronted with every day that reminds them of their journey, of where they were, you know, of something that was very important to them or an experience they had. And, you know, and those, those sort of drunken, quote unquote, unconscious decisions. It's like, you know, as we peel back the layers, what is going on in your life at the time? What was happening? What, what did you need to rebel against? due to your body to take ownership of your body what was happening 
and that you can find a tremendous amount of meaning just by sort of reflecting on all those things. Well, and that's, that's the word that stands out as being self-reflective. I noticed that when we, I lead this retreat and really there's, the magic is in pulling away all of the kind of day-to-day mm-hmm. daily experiences that keep one in one's routine. And when you go on to a retreat like that, you open up to whispers of mm-hmm. that, are, that are there all the time, but they tend to be quieted beneath all the kind of daily grind mm-hmm. of life. But then you're, you're allowed, you're, you're invited to be self-reflective right. and seemingly mundane moments of life become imbued with enormous energy that all of a sudden you've got a symbol, you know, that, that you can relate with. And I love, I love this, um, what you were talking about, the, the zombie and the, and mm. Jesus. That's, that's a really uh. good interpretation. <laughs> I like that a lot. Well, so let's jump into Beard 2, uh, because they're related. Right. Yeah. The, the body. Yeah. And, uh, and then also related to, you know, the, the other stuff that I was talking about. The, sure. Because I thought when, so I did uh, in Jungian training, uh, one of the, the first things you have to do, uh, your first major writing is uh, symbol paper. So mm-hmm. everyone, you pick a symbol, not a huge paper, about 20 pages. Uh, and write about that. And I didn't want to write about the beard as uh, historical, you know, what it has meant in different cultures, what it means at different times. I wanted, based on the experience with the tattoo project, to do interviews. And I thought it was going to sort of be a survey of, you know, what what does it mean to be a male in the 21st century? You know, what is what is masculinity in the 21st century? And it wasn't about that. It was about that. And many, many, many more things. It wasn't just about that, you know. So I interviewed, uh, ranging from twenty, about twenty years old to about fifty years old, 15, 15 guys, two uh, trans men who have beards, one bearded drag queen, maybe two bearded drag queens, and just a whole group of, you know, straight, gay, everything in between. And. It was really, really fascinating, the aspects of sort of what happened to me when growing the beard. And part of that was, and it does have to do with sexuality, but it just has to do with being in touch with nature, with nature itself. You know, the the irony is that you get a beard by not doing something rather than by doing something, by allowing nature to do its thing. You know, that later on your mother-in-law can give you shit because you use beard oils and, you know, tend yes. to your facial hair as if it's, <laughs> you know, a garden. Oh, and it is. It is a garden. It is, you know, yeah. <laughs> it is absolutely a garden. And, you know, the idea of I need to be in touch with something that is more primal, a little wilder, you know, again, like listening to Prokofiev when I was you know, 14 years old, you know, and getting very excited about the the intensity and the barbarism of it. Barber, babar, beard, you know, all that. The uh, So there's that aspect of it. I, so many men, without being conscious of it, grew beards uh, when they 
were needing to be in touch with their body when something sexual had happened coming out or uh, needing to be in touch with their sexuality, looking at, at uh, certain aspects of life. Um, so there's that aspect of it. There was the, you know, the masculine aspect of it, but not in the way I expected. There was one guy who talked about South American, you know, sort of suave uh, lover type who said, you know, it makes me look, you know, I don't have to worry about looking more masculine. So it allows me to be much more sensitive. You know, I have this, you know, this masculine sort of shield in a way so that I don't have to prove it. So I can be as, you know, open and emotional and expressive as I want to be because it sort of uh, protects that. It's a kind of protection for, you know, an inner eros, an inner intimate side. So, you know, all these things bubbled up. And then, you know, the idea of these, as I said before, these bearding groups and these, uh, these groups of men who are, this creates a, an excuse or a symbol, not an excuse, a symbol for connectedness, for intimacy in many ways. Um, and so it was just fascinating to to encourage this kind of self-reflection, you know, uh, that, you know, when you do something to change your body or to change your face, there's no way we could be completely conscious of what our motivations are. You know, clearly there's a whole level of, of unconscious material that's going into the decision of, I want to change my face. I want to change something on my body. I just, I, I heard somebody without an example of what that means, mm -hmm. right? Because you say, well, I just did it because I want to, mm -hmm. right? I, you know, I saw somebody I liked and I dug their vibe and then I, mm -hmm. I did that. So what do you say to that? Uh, what, what are some examples, I guess that's better, of, of what that looks like in, in, action, in, in an applied manner, somebody not being aware of what's happening uh, unconsciously? Right. Well, I think, you know, in the conversations we had, a lot of the understanding, you know, really took place in retrospect. It's like, oh, wait, I did grow my beard just before I left that relationship. I didn't really realize it at the time, but wow, you know, or I, you know, I did grow my beard just before I came out or I, you know, I grew my beard when I was feeling constrained by my job and, you know, I needed to quit my job and do something that I was passionate about. And I needed to allow the passion, what was naturally me, to come to the surface before I, I was able to take that step, you know, but generally these are not conscious decisions. Right. Like, you know, I'm going to grow a beard because I want to leave, leave my job. You know, people don't really think in those terms that I think is one of the beauties of Jungian psychology is the encouragement to see, you know, everything that we gravitate toward or away from, you know, anything that, that repels us in our life as you know the most profound clue to to who we are on a deeper level and what we don't necessarily want to or are not yet able to recognize in a conscious way so to just pay attention and to 
reflect on, as you said. And to your, your, your analysis earlier of language comes to mind that the, the clue, having a clue, mm. learning how to read the language of the psyche as expressed in our body, primarily right. these two things, as, as expressed in our body, tattoos and beards and anything mm. from right. whatever changes, certainly permanent changes uh, one wants to undergo, mm. uh, are expressing something that is probably unconscious. And I even think about your person wanting to leave their job, you know, that, you know, there, you wrote a lot about it, about going into the wilderness, mm -hmm. you know, so trying to part ways with the expectations of one's culture, one's family of origin, you know, look this way, make money that way. Here are the expectations laid mm -hmm. out upon you and you'll feel an enormous amount of guilt or shame if you deviate. So part of the the image of the beard being a, a symbol that can carry for for that person all of those unconscious mm -hmm. desires to depart from those expectations and to uh, to find something in oneself that can uh, that can be expressed in, right. in a different way apart from that huh. well wow. i'm aware we have five more minutes okay um and and actually five more minutes would i would, would take us way too close to <laughs> to my next appointment. Um, so I want to, I want is there anything in closing that we can kind of circle around or something that you haven't expressed through the... No, just what is kind of in, very interesting for me about this conversation is the thread. You know, these things that it seems like we've been talking about completely different things. But we really haven't been, you know, the thread of being able to, through the body, whether it's making music or listening to music, allowing vibrations to enter the body or, or through sexuality or intimate relationships with friends or tattoos or beards or whatever, how we allow ourselves to be penetrated by by the mystery, by, by meaning, by, by what can truly transform, you know, which has to come from a place that we are afraid of. <laughs> yeah, I think if, if there's anything I want to circle up on eventually is, to, is that, is mm -hmm. the fear, the terror. Mm -hmm. of I think any of course anyone feels it we're all aware of it I know that there are enormous consequences of men in the world's culture not allowing themselves to feel vulnerable and right. intimate connection and the flight from those any potential of feeling intimately connected with another human being I, I, and I don't think that's uh, homoerotic that's just Everybody. That's everybody. Well, the, and then there's the connection between uh, homophobia and misogyny, I think, which is, uh, I, I think those are very similar I agree. territories because the, it's, it's the fear of vulnerability. It's the fear of, of openness. It's the fear of not being in charge, of not being the strongest, of not being in control in a very Western conscious and specifically American kind of way that cuts us off from 
from mental health and so many, so many things that we can see. We can see how brittle and uh, unhealthy the general American masculine and patriarchal psyche is. And I say patriarchal, not necessarily male, right. you know, patriarchy as uh, that which is about power and not which is about acceptance. I want to say I, I read somewhere that patriarchy, the term was was born out of land ownership. And so we really are coming back to the body, hmm. having the body, having ownership of the land, earth, body. Yeah. All those get into some pretty interesting commentaries on uh, well, on nature. Right, mother, matter. Yeah, yeah. Well, that. there's another six hours. There's another. So I hope we'll do this again. Thank you. Um, Thank you so much, John. Oh my. This has been great. <laughs> um, I am truly grateful, Rodney. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you. Until next time.